0: Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 16. Yet among the mature do we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan, and I'm one of the elders here at Christ City, Kitsilano, and it's my joy to bring you God's uh, preaching of God's word this morning. Uh, If you don't know me, if I haven't met you, I'd be happy to meet you out in the lobby or uh, or come and find me. I want to get to know you. Uh, let me pray before I begin. Father God, I need your help. I need your wisdom as, uh, as I minister your word this morning. Uh, would you be with me and would your spirit speak? And Father, be with your people as well. Would you soften hearts? Would your word both convict and encourage us that we might be made more in your likeness that we may display forth your glory in Jesus name amen if you have your bibles turn with me to first Corinthians chapter 2 keep your finger there and uh and we'll be looking at that text from verse 6 to 16 that Emmelina read for us let me just begin by asking you a question i want you to think about this and have a word picture in your mind what comes to mind when you think of the words wise man or wise woman? I'll give you a few seconds to think, and then perhaps jot down a little bit of a note in your, in your First Corinthians notebook. We'll come back to this in a bit. So here we've been in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and it's been a gloriously helpful, timely book to be studying together. And so this morning, as we continue in chapter 2, starting in verse 6, Paul continues to qualify his motivations. He sets up what he's going to talk about for the rest of the letter. And you may recall that last week, Paul did not wish to proclaim to the Corinthians with lofty speech or wisdom, nor in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that their faith and ours might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, we might get the wrong impression from these few verses that Paul is anti-wisdom. And so Paul clarifies in this section. Yet among the mature, he says in verse 6, we do impart wisdom. We do speak wisdom. Not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, but a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory so clearly Paul wasn't anti-wisdom but he was playing on the buzzwords of the day seeking to redefine them in light of the gospel in light of Jesus one could even say that he was a better uh, dad joker than me by doing so he was hoping that his readers would see the fleeting nature of the earthly wisdom that they had sought, and by contrast, the beauty of God's eternal wisdom found in Jesus Christ. He was hoping to shake their complacency, this functional insanity that they kept running to, this wisdom of the world that would lead to death, so that they might cling onto God's eternal wisdom through the Holy Spirit that leads to life. You see, the Corinthians prized wisdom. As Brandt has been laying out, Corinth is a happening city. You could go places in Corinth, fulfill your destiny. It was a place, a bustling place of commerce. It prized intellectual thinking, a certain kind of elite maturity. Philosophers would use the term mature or perfect to refer to those who had progressed to an advanced stage of wisdom, And frankly, Corinthian culture is not so far from what our culture is like here in 21st century Vancouver. We too are a strategic hub of commerce. We're known as the gateway to the Pacific. We too prize highly educated people with advanced degrees of professionalism, of good rhetorical speeches. We like our podcasts, our TED Talks, our polished YouTube videos, our books, our smartphones, our collective wisdom. And we think of maturity of wisdom of our destiny in terms of being more learned, more experienced, uh, more gray hairs, more knowledge. Consider even the enduring icons of our culture. Wisdom and flourishing look a lot more like Yoda in Star Wars than Jesus on a crucifix. And so my aim this morning is to encourage you, to exhort you, to consider that the wisdom of God, this eternal wisdom of God, displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, revealed through His Spirit, is superior to any human wisdom. The eternal wisdom of God is superior to any human wisdom. For those who receive it, it has tremendous implications on both how we live and how we can boldly speak about Jesus to a lost world resting in the power of God. So we'll look at this passage and the wisdom of God this morning through several lenses. They'll kind of form the basis of our outline. We're going to look at six characteristics and their implications. In other words, we're going to try to answer the question, what is the wisdom of God? And why must we cling to it? And then we'll spend a little bit of time just looking at our response. And I want to paint some pictures for you. So let's just dive in. Characteristics and implications. What is the wisdom of God? Why must we cling to it? The first characteristic we notice is that wisdom is imparted to the mature. Spoken to the mature, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do speak wisdom. We do impart wisdom. Now, if you're like me, you know, you read this kind of verse and you go, who are the mature? <laughs> like, that's my first question. And so perhaps it's better to start with who the mature are not. Well, they are not who the Corinthians thought maturity was. Um, they have not discovered some secret human knowledge or um, found it buried deep within the recess of their mind or their, or some deep cave somewhere that they found some secret scroll. That's not the type of maturity. Uh, that he's referring to. Maturity does not refer to the most learned, or the ones with the seminary degrees, or the ones with the best rhetoric. It does not refer to the Jedi Knight who has mastered all of the knowledge of his master. Mature also does not refer to uh, tiered Christianity. Sometimes, uh, in fact, nearly every cult and Every false gospel has sought to justify their view based on this passage. And so this really actually bears clarifying. The mature are not a subset of Christians who have received some sort of second blessing or some sort of special favor or have some special connection with with God. And yet, Paul uses some rather delineating language, doesn't he? He suggests that only the mature will understand this secret and hidden wisdom of God. I mean, it does sound elitist. And indeed, he's, shall we say, playing on some of the terms of the day. After all, the Corinthians love to apply the term mature to themselves. And he, I think, he rightly wanted the readers to ask the question, who then are the mature? He wanted his readers to really think, well, what does maturity actually mean? Well, in fact, the word mature is the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. Meaning perfect or complete or whole. It refers to those who have the aim of Christ as their destiny. It is those whom Jesus says belongs to the kingdom of heaven, who have the mind of Christ, who who have his spirit, who are rightly able to understand the depths of the gospel and who importantly demonstrate that in behavior. We know they are mature because of the fruit that is born out of their lives. They are what Paul calls the spiritual person in verse 15. They live out a paradigm of the cross in love rather than knowledge. They mature or perfect in the sense that they are being brought to their rightful end in Christ by the power of God. They are those who have died to their old selves, to kind of play off Galatians 2, having been crucified with Christ and are now living by faith in the Son of God. So, who falls in this category? Who falls in this category? Well, anybody who is in Christ. In other words, the mature refers to all who have come to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. In other words, the mature refer to Christians. But this characteristic ought to challenge us. Are you among the mature? Or have you been operating with a different different? Functional definition of maturity. What's your definition of mature? So, the second characteristic of wisdom is that it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. The second half of verse six. Some have suggested that the rulers of this age refer to some angelic powers or uh, in the heavens, some demonic powers perhaps, but in context, it seems much more likely that Paul was referring to the earthly rulers. What Paul simply means is that God's eternal wisdom is not the same as the prevailing wisdom of the day. I've lived long enough to realize that the wisdom of the day is often just that. It's fleeting. It's doomed to pass away. Consider what uh, Bill Gates said in 1981. I'm a computing scientist, so I can say this. 640k kilobytes ought to be enough for anybody said, apparently. Of course, the phones that we carry around certainly prove that this piece of wisdom was incredibly wrong. Now, we laugh at the incredible short-sightedness with the benefit of hindsight, right? Don't we? But what is so insidious about this wisdom of the age is that it often seems so right at the time. It seems so right given the parameters that we have at the time. It seemed right for Pilate to crucify Jesus. Just as much as it seemed right for the Corinthians to be quarreling, to be divided, and to kind of line up behind their favorite teachers. Here are some ways in which um, this kind of applies today. We bump up against this today. The striving to accomplish things based on merit seems right. Our secular theories of human behavior and their solutions, they seem right. Our theories of gender fluidity, of identity, seem right. The use of secular marketing ideas, sales tactics in order to grow the church, seem right. The usage of political means to try to accomplish moral rightness in society, even when it comes at great gospel compromise, Seems right at the time. Kind of there are four major categories where this will often see this bump up against uh, wisdom on who we are, wisdom on what we're supposed to be doing, what is wrong with us, and how to fix it. You'll often see wisdom of the day try to speak into these four issues. And yet the Bible speaks a better word. And so Paul here contrasts this fleeting doomed to pass away wisdom, human wisdom, against, against the secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages. This is our third characteristic. God's message of wisdom is secret and hidden. It's decreed before the ages, verses 7 through 9. The secret and hidden wisdom of God Quite literally, the wisdom in mystery is none other than the gospel. It's none other than the gospel, which was hidden and veiled in ages past. They were just type shadows, but is now fully revealed in the person and ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Put another way, you can think of it this way. The message of Christ crucified. Embodies the wisdom of God. You want to know what the wisdom of God is? Look at the cross. But this concept of a crucified Messiah might, that this crucified Messiah might be the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. I mean, it continued to confound, confuse many. Verse 8 reminds us that none of the rulers of this age understood this. Because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1:23, which we studied a few weeks ago, reminded us that it remained a stumbling block to the Jews and the Gentiles. Though the symbol of God's wisdom was in plain sight, it remained hidden because it simply could not be understood by the human mind apart from God's spirit enabling them to understand it. Early enemies of Christianity uh, often ridiculed this claim that God's anointed, that man's savior would be this executed criminal on a cross. You know, you got to remember that the cross was an instrument of torture. It was reserved for the vilest of criminals. Roman citizens could not be crucified. The idea that one would worship somebody on a cross was crazy. The late beloved theologian John Stott writes this account of some second century graffiti, a caricature, political cartoon, shall we say, found painted on a house in Rome. And this house was considered to be um, a school for imperial pages, educated people. Quote, a crude drawing depicts, Stretched on a cross, a man with the head of a donkey. To the left stands another man with one arm raised in worship, unevenly scribbled underneath are the words translated, Alex Menos, worships his God. Whatever the origin of the accusation of donkey worship, which was attributed to both Jews and Christians, it was the concept of worshiping a crucified man, which was being held up to derision. To better put this in context for us, imagine for a moment that we were to invent a new religion. All right? just All of you kind of c- coming on the conspiracy here. We're going to invent a new religion. And the religious symbol that we're going to use for this new religion is the electric chair. On Sundays, we'll sing. When I survey the wondrous chair, or at the chair, at the chair where I first saw the light, Or in a room far away stood an old rugged chair. I mean, you just imagine the ridicule amongst all who would call themselves wise in our world as they looked upon this new morbidly electrifying faith. And yet to the Christian, the cross though an instrument of torture and execution, does embody these very themes, this timeless wisdom of God. The cross, when understood by the mature, was the very way in which God demonstrated his love for his people. On it, love and justice would be satisfied, but more so, it would bring about maximum glory for his son, and for his people. And this was God's purpose all along. It was God's purpose from the beginning. You see, not only was the, the arrival of the Messiah prophesied about since Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth and when man fell into sin, God created all things, including time and history, through Jesus Christ, his Son. So that as Colossians 1.18 says, that in everything, he might be preeminent. That Jesus might be preeminent. And so that brings us to the fourth characteristic. The wisdom or our glory. Verses 7 and 8. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul uses the term for our glory and Jesus as the Lord of glory together in the same sentence. You see, Paul is connecting the destination of God's people with Jesus, reminding them that, that not only are they united with Jesus in his death, but they are destined for life in Jesus Christ. We'll see this more in 1 Corinthians 15, this glorious chapter on the resurrection. But if you can't wait two years while we continue on the sermon series, let me just give you a bit of a foretaste. 1 Corinthians 15:49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Verses 53 through 57. Of chapter 15, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't there something supremely comforting about this? That this wisdom was decreed before the ages for our glory. It was decided, it was determined beforehand That God would bring his people to glory through the wisdom of Jesus Christ, crucified. God didn't make this up as he went. (laughs) Unlike the rulers of the day, God did not learn wisdom and then act accordingly. No. God is wise because he is God. God is wise because he is God. God's perspective is eternal. It spans from even before time all the way through to consummation for all eternity. And he's ordained all of this for the glory of his son and for the glory of those who are united with Christ, his people. And this is good news. It means that if this morning you are united with Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not need to make it up as you go. You can rest in faith. You can know God's wisdom is supremely better than yours. Which brings us to the fifth characteristic about this wisdom it's revealed, not discovered. It is revealed, not discovered. It is revealed by the Spirit. The wisdom of Paul, that Paul is imparting to the mature, contrasted boldly with the wisdom of the day. And it contrasts boldly with the wisdom of our day. Worldly wisdom, it relies on discovery. We can only know what we discover. Godly wisdom, by contrast, relies on revelation it was a wisdom that the wise of the world simply could not understand paul quotes from two places in isaiah restated here as uh, as one in verse 9 what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what god has prepared for those who love him these things god has revealed to us through the spirit for all you philosophy majors uh, Paul uses a three-point argument in verses 10 through 16 to make his point. And it goes like this. The major premise of the argument, point number one, he says this. Only a person's spirit can know that individual's thoughts unless he or she chooses to disclose them to someone else. Okay? This is true both of God and humanity. Unless I tell you what I'm thinking, you don't really know what I'm thinking. Right? <laughs> as much as I might be friends with or love a person, I simply cannot know the depths of his or her heart because I don't have his or her spirit. In fact, by the way, it's often how we end up being foolish and getting into conflict because we assume the thoughts and motives of others. But I digress. That's the counselor in me speaking. Likewise, only the spirit of God, Comprehends the thoughts of God. Verse 10b, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And so here Paul makes clear this relationship between the Holy Spirit and God the Father. You know, we really seldom stop to think about this, right? We often talk about Jesus and the Father, but here Paul is making clear the relationship between the Spirit and the Father. The spirit knows the father intimately. He knows the depths of God. He knows his thoughts. He knows God's heart. Only the people who have, who have a person's spirit can know that individual's thoughts unless he or she chooses to disclose them to somebody else. So the second part of the argument goes like this. Christians have God's spirit living in them. 1 Corinthians 2.12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. We might remember that Jesus promised his disciples in John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And then again in 14.26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I, I Jesus, have said to you. And so the argument goes: only uh, only the spirit of a person knows the thoughts, and that the spirit, the Holy Spirit, knows the Father's thoughts, knows God's thoughts, and Christians have God's Spirit living in them. Therefore, Christians can know God's thoughts, at least to the extent that the Spirit graciously reveals it to them. We can know God's heart. Oh my goodness. That is mind-blowing. We can know God's heart. First Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. We read that just earlier, but I didn't read the last part. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. We've been going pretty quick. Let's just take a brief pause and think through this radical truth for a minute. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ, you can know God's heart because you have the spirit of God in you. He graciously reminds you of Jesus's words written in scripture. He convicts you for your good. He encourages you. He makes you bear fruit in your life. He takes you from one degree of glory to the next. In his spirit, we are imparted with the wisdom of God that we might have a life pleasing to him. Now, this has some really practical implications. I'm not just, you know, talking about abstract theological truths. Earlier, for instance, I made the side remark that uh, we often stumble into foolishness and conflict when we assume the thoughts of others. Karen and I see this in marital counseling a lot. (laughs) Secular wisdom would assume that just just better communication, if you can just communicate your thoughts better, that will solve the issue. And of course it does. Better communication is important. But notice the key. If indeed, as Christians, we have God's spirit within us, and we can know God's thoughts. And if, as Christians, we are destined to be a people united with Christ for his glory, then conflict can be resolved not by coming to some human compromise, but by dying to our own wisdom and clinging on to God's wisdom, God's thoughts, God's hearts, God's motives, rather than our own. His thoughts, his wisdom, become the common ground. His cross becomes the common ground, the only unifying factor that is supremely powerful, the only way that conflict resolution actually is guaranteed between two Christians. Unfortunately, we often confuse the spirit with our own feelings which are so informed by the wisdom of the world. We all make this mistake. And thus we treat our feelings as wisdom. Being spirit-led becomes an excuse for operating by how I feel. And so we must guard against this. But how? How do we guard against this? Well, that brings us to our sixth and final characteristic. God's wisdom is found in Christ. And he's given us the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16. Paul says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul introduces this new term, the natural person, to mean the worldly wise man. Okay? The worldly wise man. The NIV actually translates as the man without the spirit. And of course, the man without the spirit is not qualified to judge, to weigh in on spiritual things. And so the natural person is contrasted starkly against the spiritual person. But notice how Paul takes a surprising turn at the end of this passage. He quotes from Isaiah 40. He says, he says, who has understood the mind of the Lord? And the natural, it's a rhetorical question, right? The natural answer to that is no one. But that's not what he says. He says this, instead he, he boldly proclaims. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? He boldly proclaims that we have the mind of Christ. Well, back to our application question. How might we guard against operating by our feelings? Now, um, of course, the oft-overused slogan, what would Jesus do? You know, those bracelets back in the 90s is a good way to check this. But perhaps a more accurate way is to simply ask yourself how the cross of Jesus Christ fits into this so-called wisdom that you seem to think is so right. Is what your heart telling you at that moment, lining up with the gospel? Does it propel you to an end of glorifying God? Are you discerning with the mind of Christ? Are you still with me? So far, we've looked at the characteristics of God's wisdom. They are imparted to the mature, number one. They are not a wisdom of this age, number two. They are secret and hidden, decreed before the ages, number three. They are for Jesus' glory and for our glory, number four. They are revealed by His Spirit, number five. And they are found in Christ, number six. And I've teased out some of the implications, particularly in how we live, namely that God's hidden wisdom is none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, symbolized by the cross, and that every decision that we make ought to reflect the absolute dependence upon God's powerful saving work. And this godly wisdom ought to bring us to our knees in praise. They say that theology ought to result in doxology. It ought to motivate us to praise Him, to worship Him. To be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We ought to move forward with that kind of steadfast praising Him attitude because the Spirit is at work. And you know what? It ought to break down our divisions too. It ought to unify us. But I want to highlight one more implication. Why must we cling on to God's wisdom? because it is the only way to proclaim the gospel. Thus far, I've neglected actually to mention a key interpretive aspect to this passage. Um, some of you Bible geeks will note me for that. You may have noticed in past weeks that Paul has been using some repetitive words. Right? For example, in the latter part of chapter one, he's been—he we, we noticed the repetitive use of God chose, God chose, God chose, right? And in the last uh, pericope, the last, part that Matt preached for us, uh, you notice the emphasis on I, and I, and I, and I. And in this passage, verses 6 to 16, we see the repeated use use of we and us. We, 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 us, us, us. What does we mean? Well, in context, it likely refers to Paul unifying himself with the other teachers of the about the gospel. Remember in the beginning, talking about like, do you follow Apollos or Cephas, you know, also known as Peter? So, I mean, there's that sense, right? When he's saying we, he's, Paul's saying, well, no, we're united in Christ. But in a broader sense, the we and us also unites all of us who are in Christ. All who are called to live out and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And since Jesus has called each of us to do that, it means all Christians. God's wisdom has implications on our evangelism. And the implications of what we've learned about God's wisdom is that we can rest confidently knowing that our wisdom, it is not our wisdom rather, which will ultimately bring someone to Christ. It's not our experience, nor our elegant words, nor our gray hairs, or how well we do, church, that will matter in the end. What matters is that we live, we proclaim, we seek flourishing from Jesus, that we live out a radically spirit-filled, love-infused, cross-centered life, clinging on to the wisdom of God, and we are faithful, resting our confidence on him, faithful in proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected we don't rest our message on the wisdom of men. And all those who have ears to hear will hear and respond. Well, we've talked a lot about the characteristics and some of its implications. How do we respond to such a message? How do we respond? I've been doing a lot of thinking actually lately about glory, about maturity, wisdom, legacy. Part of this is just because I'm middle-aged and this is what people that are going through midlife crises do. (laughs) Uh, But it's also passages like this uh, that have really challenged me to reflect on what is truly our end. Paul says that it's among the mature, the people of destiny, that he imparts the wisdom of God. And so I've been asking the the question, is this the picture that I'm aiming for? Is the the picture that I'm aiming for actually in line with this? Is it actually in line with Scripture, in line with God's eternal wisdom? God in his providence, um, oh, he's so good. God in his providence uh, provided two recent events that have really provoked my thinking. The first is actually of our dear sister, Emelina, uh, Emelina's grandpa who recently passed away. Here's a man who has evidently left much of a legacy. And those of you who know Emelina and her family, who happen to be here today, (laughs) I didn't know that, and heard her talk about her family, know that much is evident. But what you may not know is that her grandpa also suffered from Alzheimer's, from dementia in his latter years. His memory of earthly things, of earthly wisdom, including his family, were faint at best. But the eternal words of Scripture remained. Just last week, uh, M was sharing with some of us how he would joyfully respond whenever Scripture was read. What a beautiful picture of this lasting wisdom of God. The second picture is similar. Karen and I recently had the opportunity to travel to Charlotte, North Carolina, for the annual conference of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Um, One of the highlights was to be able to thank all, uh, all three of my mentors in person. It was actually a real real joy to be able to do that. And these older saints have been instrumental in teaching and coaching me as a counselor, as a biblical counselor. And considering that at least one of them is getting quite old and nearing graduation of a different sort it was a unique opportunity for me to show my gratitude this side of eternity after the conference karen and i reflected on this with a newly found friend over some really really good southern barbecue and as we shared our new friend said something rather profound and unexpected she said this, I just love hanging out with the older saints, she said, because they are so young. Uh, perplexed, I, as I took another bite out of my really good ribs, I, <laughs> I said, Young? You know, I had expected her to say, because they have so much life experience and wisdom. Trying to articulate this rather paradoxical quality about older saints, she continued. Yes, young and so alive in the spirit. You know, I intuitively knew what she meant, but it wasn't until I was preparing for this message that it really dawned on me how profound her statement was. You see, older saints, particularly those of the character of some of my mentors, are young, they're youthful in their spirit because they have the Holy Spirit in them, blossoming fruit. They are spiritual men, men who have the mind of Christ. They are young because they are visibly mature, they're visibly Christ-like. They are wise not because they bear the marks and life experience of having gone through much suffering in this fallen world, but because they bear the unblemished, the increasingly unblemished, unwrinkled, complete image of God. In their soul, the ever-increasing wisdom of God, the glory of God being demonstrated through them. These are saints who have understood the secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. They are the saints who understand and see the world with new eyes, with cross-shaped eyes, able to bring God's perspective on every aspect, every decision in life. I began this message by asking you to think about two word pictures, Uh, sorry, of a word picture, a picture of a wise man or wise woman. And perhaps like me, you initially thought of an old, crinkly old hobbling man with a cane, with long gray hairs, perhaps a, a bit of a beard, Looks a little bit like Yoda, because they've shrunk. But the more I meditate upon this passage, the more I think that the wise man, though he may be old and frail, looks ever so young in his inner man. Not because he's gained experience, but because he has been made more and more unblemished in the likeness of Christ. The challenge, the question is, which of these pictures do you aspire to be?